Podiatry Today podcasts, where we bring you the latest on foot and ankle medicine and surgery from leaders in the field. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the Managing Editor of Podiatry Today. In this episode, we are so fortunate to have Dr. Jeffrey McAllister and Dr. Mitzi Williams with us to talk about multiple aspects of a pathology podiatrists see daily in their office, Halix valgus. Dr. McAllister is a fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon, board certified by the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery, and a fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. He is in private practice and is the founder of the Phoenix Foot and Ankle Institute in Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Williams is a fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons and is also board certified by the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery. She is an attending physician with the San Francisco Bay Foot and Ankle Surgery Residency Program at Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, California. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. We are here to talk about pallux valgus correction, midfoot instability, and we're going to keep this real conversational for, for you folks and just kind of learn about what we're doing in our two different areas, kind of what we've learned over our short careers here and be able to discuss some things that we've learned over time and what maybe some fail-safes are, what to look out for in clinic and kind of how we're working up some of our standard yet uh, sometimes complicated bunion patients. So Mitzi, I'm just going to start right off the bat. So what what are you doing for your standard 30-year-old runner? Because you probably see some active people in California. You have a 30-year-old female runner patient that's, let's just say, failed conservative treatment. What, what's your workup? What are you doing for your standard? What's your thought process when you're thinking about booking a case with a patient? Mm-hmm. I liked this topic. And, and, and the reason I like, I like bunions or um, I like the topics where we start thinking about reconstructive, almost forefoot or midfoot procedures is, you know, we focus so much in training on rear foot and reconstruction. And then the longer you're out, you realize that there is a lot of finesse and there are a lot of things that you find when we start thinking of bunion deformities, right? When we look really and we dig deep on recurrences and why do recurrences happen, right? And all of these things that people bring to the table. So, you know, I always tell people, and and I'm at an area um, where I do train residents, but um, bunions can be very challenging and at times very humbling. And so I, I really think this is a good topic for discussion because of the recurrences we see and, and really more of where are we from a research standpoint. So Jeff, kind of what you talked about, you know, the 30-year-old female um, who is active, you know, you really want to take into account your host, right? So clearly we've got somebody who's healthy, who's active, who's really driven by definitely wanting to get back to probably more high impact like activity. Um, We really start looking at not only our radiographs and the degree of our IM angle or H angle and our tibial sesamoid position, but also clearly we've entered that world of really looking at the, the sesamoid position and more of this frontal plane. And the reason for why is I always say our outcomes, our outcomes drive change, right? So clearly the thought behind this frontal plane um, need for correction is, um, is apparent. It's, it's apparent we clearly have to correct things in all three planes. Taking this patient into account, you know, a vitamin D workup amongst other things. So clearly you're not just focusing on your radiographs, but you're really looking at your host and that conversation, right? Oftentimes athletic people, 
they're really not just um, eager to get back to activity. They want to know what that rehab um, course is going to look like, right? How long am I clearly going to be non-weight-bearing? And Jeff, I have a feeling that you and I might differ just a little bit on our recovery based on procedure selection, um, where I may be a little bit more conservative and starting early range of motion, but I may not, in fact, be weight-bearing them as soon as you. So I'm eager to hear what you have to say. But like I said, a lot of it really does depend on your radiographs, you know, and the degree of deformity um, and everything that your patient is bringing to the table. And again, is there any degree of arthritic change of that great toe joint, right? Or is there any deforming force um, where you may have to address some of the hind foot principles and not just the bunion itself too? Definitely some key points. And my kind of thought goes to the like 30 year old patient that wants to start doing CrossFit at week six, that, that definitely is a conversation where you have to take them off of the mountain and pull them down off of the ropes or whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it and say, look, you're, you're, you're only going to be doing bicep curls for like two months straight. <laughs> you're going to get huge, but your squats and your box jumps and your jump ropes right, are going right. to be halted for a little while. <laughs> yes. And the reason is because the recurrence rate can be high if you don't listen. So I tell my patients kind of a, a couple like tips thing. I say, if you smoke and you're diabetic and you don't listen, things uh -huh. are not going to go well. So I think, you know, earning, earning the patient's trust is number one, but also being able to um, kind of being able to rope in their expectations and handle them with care and say, look, this is, everything's going to be okay, but you need to just listen and follow the rules. And like you, what, what you said, work up the patient from an appropriate kind of standpoint. I, I try to tell them most kind of forefoot, midfoot, uh, anything mm -hmm. really treat it like a race, like a marathon. You are, right. your body is getting ready to undergo the challenges of trauma to the soft tissue and bone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, push like the supplements and that kind of stuff, just as if you were doing an Ironman or something like that. I think mm -hmm. from a whole body standpoint, a holistic standpoint, it kind of drives home definitely <laughs> a whole body experience. So I'd, I'd start talking about the supplement stuff and that is just part of the yeah. package that comes yeah. with, with foot surgery, but ties into that, that surgery that is almost like an Achilles rupture. It's, it's uh, surgery one, two, three, go. And from, you know, we're on the same page in terms of like early rehab, uh, range of motion stuff. I mean, I think we both probably get their big toe moving pretty quick, uh -huh. but I do walk them a little early. Let me kind of mm -hmm. back up the conversation a little bit to what we look at on x-rays and stuff. So what are you ordering in the office kind of standard? Uh, I think you're at more of a university center than I am or mm -hmm. bigger practice, I'd say. Mm -hmm. What are you, are you getting kind of like full seismoidaxials? Kind of take me through your, when you walk in the room, like what do you have in your hand to look at? Mm -hmm. So, so I would say um, at minimum before somebody receives a consultation with us, you know, at minimum patients are coming in with the key here being weight bearing x-rays, right? So this right. is really important, obviously weight bearing x-rays. Um, because in that sense, we can really focus and look at alignment as compared to a non-weight bearing image where you might be looking at something traumatic or fracture light. So that weight-bearing image is really important. And again, sometimes, you know, I, I work in Northern California. People are being referred from all over the place. Um, there's a little bit of variation in reproducing that. Um, but clearly, when patients go, we do recommend that they are standing up for such, right? Even more variation when we start looking at the sesamoid axial shot, unfortunately. So 
most likely if you were in your own office, you know, you would be able to reproduce that image over and over and over and over again, right? If it, if it was um, one individual or trained team. But again, I've got numerous radiology departments all across Northern California or California itself. So sometimes reproducing that sesamoid axial image to really look for where is the metatarsal head, where is the crista, um, would we do something from a frontal plane? That might be a little bit harder to reproduce, I would say, Jeff, or always have that accessible. So sometimes I may not have that going in, but oftentimes that's something we can do in the operating room, right? To really kind of look and own in our, our correction, right? Do we need to, to rotate that first metatarsal if we are doing more of like a first metatarsal cuneiform joint fusion or something different and really kind of looking at that? But I think those weight-bearing images are really important. I think the other thing to pay attention to is the younger the patient you know, and keep in mind, a lot of my practice is pediatric, but the younger the patient, the younger the bunion, which is symptomatic, the more at risk we are of recurrence. And the other thing I, I always focus in on with the younger population, especially a pediatric population, is the hind foot alignment shot. So oftentimes in that young population, I really want to see that because not only am I now focused on a symptomatic Bunion, but I'm looking at what are those other deforming forces, and and more often do I find I have to address those deforming forces in a very young person as compared to somebody who's much much older. You know, so True. that would be another something I would have on board um, prior to prior to doing something in a in a young person who has growth available, just because their recurrence risk is is higher there. I've been getting sesamoid axials pretty routinely just because I have it across the hall and I can mm -hmm. even if someone comes in I can say boom yeah. we're doing sesamoid axials so I have a little bit more control of it yes I try to focus really really hone in on mm -hmm. that I call it the gray zone where there's probably a 47 year old female bunion bump pain but she also has met sesamoid arthritis mm -hmm. and that is the there's that tricky little bunion there where we really should be looking at the met sesamoid joint that we don't really appreciate or really can't touch. We can't touch that joint very well, but you can compress, you know, on a clinical exam, compress that sesamoid against the metatarsal and be able to tell, is there a positive, basically a grind test at that met sesamoid joint. So I've been kind of really honing in on that. And we've done some, a little poster recently for ASC where kind of looked at a bunch of patients and came up with a little classification for that sesamoid arthritis to be able to say, look, this person that it looks just, you know, like a 14 standard IM angle for a bunion, whatever, we're going to do a scarf, but wait a second, you're going to awaken a beast by not doing an MTP fusion when he probably should mm -hmm. be. So I kind of really hone in on the met sesamoid arthritis, mm -hmm. but with your patient population, have you found any utility? I'm kind of jumping around for a little bit, but have you okay. found any utility? utility with uh, MIS stuff? Is that popular in your area? What's your thoughts? So I, I can't really say what I do is MIS. You know, am, am I aware of the incision that I make? Am I aware of the size of the incision? Am I aware of how grandiose those incisions might be? Yes, but I can't really say anything really would be classified as a true MIS approach to what's, anything. What's your standard, what's your standard bunion procedure? that you do? I have several. Um, okay. And again, across the population, if I really come up with what are going to be the very classic procedures I do, um, 
very simply, you know, working from distal to proximal, it's either one going to be a, a distal osteotomy or a distal first metatarsal head osteotomy, right? Like a distal L or an Austin. And then working my way back, if it's not a chylectomy or first MPJ fusion for other reasons, um, most typically it's going to be a first uh, metatarsal cuneiform joint fusion. So I'm not really all across the board. Are there base wedges that I do do for a young person? Yes. Are there cottons that I do for a young person that has growth? Yes. Do I really try to get a young person to the point where um, they're a little bit closer to skeletal maturity? I do. And the reason for that is I find that um, a fusion of the first metatarsal cuneiform joint is more predictable as compared to a cotton or something else. And so, and knowing those recurrence risks are higher. But I think out of all the procedures I do, chylectomy, first MBJ fusion, lapidus, um, you know, or a distal standard Austin or a distal L, um, it's going to be pretty classic amongst those procedures. And for a pediatric patient, do you feel that you're probably seeing more rounded crista than not and be able to get kind of full frontal plane range of, range of motion? I've done some recently where you're just struggling okay. trying to get those sesamoids reduced and you have to open up your medial capsule, I usually yeah. try to avoid it. But on a kid, you're usually having to do that to keep it in order and probably moving towards a phalangeal osteotomy more often than not. I completely agree. I, I think that there's some different anatomy there. So, you know, where many of us might uh, be really working hard to not open that joint, I think this young population brings some various uh, variation to their anatomy where it's very hard to do that without doing such or tightening things up or doing some kind of a double osteotomy, like, like you alluded to, right? Whether it's the phalanx or whether it's actually doing mm -hmm. something at the met head. But again, you know, point being for this is um, I am very aggressive from a, de a deformity standpoint, a young population. But when it comes to bunions, recognizing that the younger they present with symptoms, the, the higher their risk is re recurrence wise. And so, you know, I do try to hold back to the point where I think things might be somewhat predictable, you know, early education about at some point in time, needing a first MPJ fusion within their lifetime, you know, all of those things. I think it's really right, important, right. like you said, Jeff, to kind of set the tone, you know, no matter what the age of your patient is. And what's your standard construct for a uh, um, metcuneiform fusion? So I th think I'm, I'm still pretty standard. Um, you know, here, I, again, I work at a very large institution. We're very aware of cost amongst other things, but if it is a, um, uh, first time lapidus or first met cuneiform joint fusion. Um, I do two screws and sometimes a third if I've got some um, play intercuneiform in that area. But usually, no, usually it's two, three, five screws with the first screw being my home run from the first metatarsal into the cuneiform and then the second being from the cuneiform into the metatarsal itself. So I, I think Jeff, you and I will will vary a little bit here. And then doing the splay test and getting some stability of the intercuneiform joint if needed, right? I think that's that's a really right. important principle in really checking for that, right? Especially in the world of outcomes and recurrences and what can we do and knowing that this is very dynamic. I think that, mm -hmm. that is that is extremely important, right? It's like stressing the syndesmosis after every ankle or when when you're yep. fixing it right you got to do it just to show that it's not there or show it show it looks stable if it right. was if it's a revision though um then i'm i'm working my way up to a plate right um and then i'm very cautious about what i do 
because not only are we worried about where is that first metatarsal frontal plane, have we improved our IM angle, but we don't want to overshorten it either. Um, so I'm very cautious about that too, as to where the, is that first ray going to lie in accordance to, to where my second is too. So, so I think you're curating or what? Yeah, so I, so I, I don't use a saw. Um, I, I do a lot of curatage. I use osteotomes. Um, and then as we discussed, you know, splay test and then using a wire to kind of derotate the first metatarsal in the frontal mm -hmm. plane, just based on whatever the, whatever the patient needs, right, or based on what that, right. that deformity looks like. Basically the same thing, mm -hmm. uh, jig style. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it be a, a clamp of some sort to reduce the uh, first and metatarsal angle. And really, I mean, I do not start putting anything in or pinning anything until the sesamoids are reduced. And so I'll do a kind of a first TMT release and then my distal release. I don't take a piece of the adductor or anything. I just mm -hmm. do a basic J, man J maneuver and kind of more focus on the LCL or the lateral collateral ligament of the first M MTP. Um, sometimes I'll need to be able, I'll, I'll need to get a curved scissors of some sort to get underneath the sesamoids. And then I start questioning myself whether I should be doing a first MTP fusion if these are so mm -hmm. sticky sometimes. Mm -hmm. But basically, this thing is not being screwed or plated until those sesamoids are appropriately reduced. And that's kind of what I, you know, fiddle with until, until it's uh, looking near perfect. So uh, I think the key really is uh, from what I've seen recently is elevatus or elevation important for prevention of kind of a hallux limitus rigidus or, mm -hmm. you know, you're earning that MTP fusion mm -hmm. pretty quick, uh, which can be easily done if you're not focusing on the sagittal plane. So I think, you know, D. Domenico talks about plantar flexing the heck out of that mm -hmm. uh, first metatarsal until yeah. it, it, it touches the ground. But I think he has something there. I mean, keeping it down is important to try to yeah. get that tripod effect and stuff. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I focus on not shortening it too much, obviously. Yeah. And I don't, I don't run to do a while with its associated complications. No. I, no. you know, there's, there's a, yeah. a standard length to the second metatarsal right. and it, it's, it needs to be there. And then yeah. the Aiken, the phalangeal is not Aiken, it's a phalangeal osteotomy if necessary. Hey, Jeff, then, can, I ask you, um, can I ask you a question? Because yeah. you, allude, you alluded to this too a little bit about your adductor. How, how many of these, if, if you are doing more of a lapidus approach, how many of these in the adult population are you opening up that first MBJ complex? I mean, how many of those are you doing? Yeah, so I, I do a lot of TMT fusions and <laughs> um, and I, I, it's dorsal incision over TMT, yeah. half centimeter incision over the uh, lateral capsule. And then I, I do not touch the medial side unless someone in the room tells me that bump is bigger than it needs to be. <laughs> so, and it, usually when you take the x-ray, you see about a half, yeah. half centimeter or so of soft tissue on the medial side and kind of focusing, get the patient and your, and your brain focused on the bone and not the soft mm -hmm. tissue. And then you're doing it kind of for the right reasons. And then yeah. not just kind of like for bump pain, you're, yeah. you're thinning out the forefoot, which is really kind of the, the pain when you put it into these things called shoes. So trying to stay out of it, the first MTP. And now there are some where that's the round, where the round Krista, uh -huh. the Sedsmoys don't want to come over. She might be older than you wanted to do. You, she pushed you to do a, mm -hmm. a TMT and she didn't want the, the joint fused for whatever reason. So that patient right there is going to be the one with some extra scar tissue on the dorsal medial mm -hmm. side of the first MTP. <laughs> but I, I really try not to go into the joint as much yeah. as possible. Yeah. So yeah. you the same, I assume. 
Well, no, and I, well, yeah. but I think, I think this is where we've come is like, you know, when I was in training, I mean, how many of these were we just taking a saw and taking the bump off, yep. right? Yep. And then, yep. and then if you were doing this fusion, right, then you were tightening up and doing these huge meal yeah. And then guess what? Yeah. On the operating room table, if you didn't stuff that interface, that interspace with a bunch of gauze, right. what happened? Right. right? You just, yeah. you uh, kind of, your sesamoids kind of look like they were in the same position, right? So, I yes. think this is this is definitely where we're looking at some of these recurrences and I don't even talk about the intermeditarsal angle anymore. I mean yeah. the bunnings of it's it's splayed. <laughs> I mean you can it is what it is. And it's the sesamoids that are malreduced and malpositioned. Yeah. And I I I kind of talk about it like a door that's opening or a gate and the sesamoids mm-hmm. have flipped out and the kneecaps need to be put back under and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. now there I've had my my fair share of varices and things, but I think if you if you hone in on the sesamoid position and get get those in appropriate alignment, you, your hallux can be sitting about a millimeter or two off in left field and you're fine. Mm-hmm. But the peds thing is tough because sometimes you can't do a TMT fusion because the growth plate's open and mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. you're probably waiting until it's you're waiting until they're fully matured, right? Well, so like I said, I, I actually think I, I actually think I'm probably fairly aggressive um, with a young okay. population. Um, it, but it, again, it, it depends on the degree of deformity that a young person is coming in with. And it depends yeah. on also how long have I followed them? Are they bringing other right. things to the table? Um, but again, you know, the, the bunion in and of itself, may, it kind of holds me back a little bit. It, it makes me want to hold back um, because I know they recur. They, and, and if I do something too soon and that, that young person has a lot of growth available, I know that it's going to recur to some degree. Are you doing more combination cases with a like arthrosis, uh, calc slide, and a uh, metatarsal osteotomy with an Aiken kind of thing? Is that kind of more of a lineup? Yeah. I, so I feel so arthrosis. I I probably don't use that as much. Um, okay. It, unless it is a spastic, um, like cerebral palsy, kind of a valgus case. Yeah. If it is a neurologically normal, no other syndrome kind of a case, most of these people are really kind of combined oftentimes with a gastrocnemius recession to some degree. You know, a lot of them bring some degree of equinus to the table. Yeah. Many of them at some point deserve an Evans. I find that to be almost like my workhorse for a lot of things. And then it really just depends on where are we in that skeletal maturity, right? Can I do a cotton? Do I have to work kind of more distal? Or can I really do the lapidus, which is really what I would prefer to do, right? Or do I have to do some kind of a cotton or something different? Um, but that's not to say I, I have had young people still, I mean, with incredible recurrences. I can think of a 13-year-old I operated on who was very, very close to skeletal maturity, very, very close, did a lapidus. And if I were to show you those images, it's almost like I did nothing at all. Yeah, it's actually yeah. a very, it's actually an incredibly hum- humbling case to look at it. Right, right. Where at this point I look back and I say to myself, well, I probably should have fixed a lot more. Um, and I, I think that, again, probably should have done that on top of something also distal. Um, but, you know. If you're doing any, uh, let's just say, rebar to the central columns or central mm-hmm. rays, are you putting it into the second met base? Or are you putting it into the cuneiforms? No. So I, I, I find more often I'm, I'm doing more of like an inner cuneiform approach, Jeff, as compared to, mm-hmm. to in the second. What about you? Same. 
Yeah, I, I've had a couple like met fractures or I think it's too stiff to be honest with you. I think yeah. uh, you might, if you're going to put it in the base, you might as well just put it through the head. I mean, it's yeah. the same thing. Yeah, no. So it, it creates a little too much stiffness. <laughs> it's not a Charco patient we're talking about my, no. but um, yeah, these are complicated and that's why yeah. folks, we are, we're talking about this because you know, it comes up at every ASC. There's only one or two sessions dedicated to it, but that's probably what we treat the most. Yeah. And Dr. Williams has a very good experience and practice with, with pediatric patients and bunions are probably not, you know, too, too common. You do, you do the crazy weird stuff with frames and with uh, neurologics. I still, but you know what? I still, I get that too, but I, but I still see um, a lot of a lot of these complaints, you know, especially, yeah. um, especially in, in adolescence or, um, uh, teenagers, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. I mean, just to bring it up, you know, met- metatarsus seductus, it's probably right. one of the reasons like we're, we're in a field where we see children and we see adults. And do I really yeah. think metatarsus seductus is, is a, is a, is a painful condition in and of itself when we look at a, at an infant? No. But do I think that metatarsus seductus complicates everything surgical in the long run, right? That we might have to do. Does it make other surgical procedures rather challenging? I, I think it can to some degree. So um, I do treat a lot of metatarsis seductus um, with casting amongst other things in infants, but mm-hmm. it's more of thinking ahead, right? And thinking right. ahead of what might that person need long-term and, and how does this foot type impact um, what that young person might need long-term too. True. Yeah. You're catching it way before mm-hmm. they're complaining about it. I mean, yeah. that's great. You're doing prophylactic yeah. surgery and casting over there. I do a lot. Of, I, I could say the same for calcaneum <laughs> valgus. I, I think you and I yeah. were taught like, Hey, it just gets better. But right, I've seen right. many of calcaneum valgus where um, it doesn't just get better and kids are left with a unilateral, you know, oblique talus or something yeah. more that requires more. So. Well, folks, I think we're rounding out our time here and this is probably going to be, you know, a kind of a quarterly topic because um, everybody does bunions for the most part. And so we probably need to be maybe even breaking this up into kind of procedure type and either peds or adult. Let's hone in on uh, Halix valgus and we can make a whole series out of it. You're absolutely right, Dr. McAllister, that this topic holds a significant wealth of potential discussion that's applicable to all of our listeners. Thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts and experiences, both Dr. McAllister and Dr. Williams. And thank you, as always, to the listeners for tuning in. Don't forget the Podiatry Today podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and your favorite podcast platforms. And as always, visit podiatrytoday.com for daily content updates.